Welcome, fans of the Justice League universe. My name is Sam. My name is Rebecca. And we are two members of the JLU podcast team who enjoy analyzing the DC films released by Warner Brothers Studios. Other contributors to this analysis are Alessandro Maniscalco and Sydney. And you can find us all on Twitter, and you can follow the show at JLU Podcast. In this episode, we're going to discuss scenes 18 and 19 from Wonder Woman, directed by Patty Jenkins. These are the scenes where Diana arrives in London, and then they go clothes shopping. Now, I mentioned that Rebecca and I are going to discuss the scenes, and you've heard both of our voices already. So I wanted to let you know that we have a bit of a new format that we're trying out. So if you've been listening to the podcast, you know that we have a scripted approach where we um, compile some notes on the scenes and then kind of polish it into a script, and then I deliver the script, uh, and that's how people are used to hearing it. Um, But now we're going to try some episodes where we do this discussion-based approach. We'll basically still go through the scenes. We're going to still try to bring insights about themes and character development, some filmmaking things that we notice, and just other comments or things that we observe about the scenes. But we're going to do some uh, of this conversational style stuff. And so that's why Rebecca here um, is going to be joining me for this first one. And we're going to try out some other ones, too, with Sydney, for example, in the next episode. So happy for you to bring your skills and expertise in this discussion format, Rebecca. (laughs) Yes, I am used to this kind of formatting and podcasting because it's a good way to bounce ideas off of another person in a conversation. Um, so there's there's benefits to both to having your thoughts exactly how you want to say it. Because sometimes with the conversational approach, you might forget. Sometimes I forget <laughs> things or I don't say it the exact way to, uh, that I want to say it. So there's pros and cons, but I, I think it, it's it might be good uh, for JLU podcast to to mix it up and try something new and and have some new voices on on the show. So uh, thank you for letting me be part of it. Yeah, and it's it kind of depends on the film a bit too because I started with BVS and that's a film where I felt like I really had to sit with my thoughts and lay them out and revise them. Uh, and it, that film seemed like it kind of demanded that kind of an approach. Um, but we're getting into Wonder Woman, Justice League, which they have a little bit of a different flair, a little bit more uh, audience-friendly kind of thing where maybe we can just talk about them as we go through. And also, to be honest, a little bit, um, my productivity had fallen just because of being busy at work and having a new baby and stuff like that. So I was not always getting the episodes out as quickly as I wanted to. And it was pretty much mostly my fault. The rest of the team was really good about the notes. But I think with this conversational format, it means we have a date and time and we'll talk about the scene and it will get done. So I'm hoping it might increase productivity for the podcast as well. There is something to be said about being consistent and when you record <laughs> and having a deadline. Uh, so I, I I appreciate all that you do for the podcast and, and uh, trying to make that happen. All right. So if you like the scripted episodes, uh, we are still going to have some scripted episodes. Like Alessandra and I are going to work on some that we do script out, but we're going to mix those in with a lot of these conversational episodes and try this out for a few months, see how it goes. So let's give it a shot. We're going to go into Wonder Woman, scenes 18 and 19, uh, and Diana's arriving in London. And first, let's just like think overall about the scenes. What did these scenes accomplish for the movie? What character development was there kind of at a top level view of these scenes? The one thing that really sticks out to me is that these scenes give some of that um, fun, personal tone. It has some humor in it, and it gives some of that lightness, but good character development that I think a lot of people responded to in the movie. Yeah, and these scenes when Diana comes to London for the first time and enters man's world is a good contrast to earlier in the film when Steve is in Themyscira and entering that world mm-hmm. and being being the fish out of water there. So now it's Diana's turn. It's flipped on her, and she's having to uh, experience this new 
this new lifestyle, this new environment, these new people that she's interacting with. So I, I really, I, I think that you have nailed it when you talk about innocence and purity, because this is something that's new to her. And so she's, she's having to adapt to it. Yeah, I think looking at the scenes overall, we can see London through her eyes and their very innocent eyes, pure eyes. Uh, and that, I think, really comes across for her as a character. And I think she is a great character to kind of deliver the critiques of man's world because she <laughs> yeah. literally comes from outside of it. And so it's not just an accident that her character is put in this sort of situation. It's like, no, her character is kind of built to reveal these sorts of things, to bring a new perspective onto things that we might be used to in man's world, so to speak. Yeah, she can she can question things that they just think of as, as normal, uh, like the, the secretary moment that I'm sure that we'll get into. But yeah, that's a good point. Now, I've mentioned in some of our previous analysis, and I think it definitely is at play here, um, these scenes are following the blockbuster formula. Um, you have a character who's going to come from an island of women and she's going to then be taken up into this adventure with men and dealing with a war in man's world. So this is the premise of the movie. And so these scenes here are part of what the, the book of the blockbuster formula book, save the cat or whatever this would say is the promise of the premise. So we expect to see Diana laugh at some of the way that man's world does things kind of critique it. Um, be surprised by, wow, I've never seen this before. Like, we need to have that happen in the movie. It's part of the premise of the movie. And if it wasn't there, we feel like we totally missed out on it. So here we get to see things like that, like her seeing a baby, her going to the clothes store, her being like, you wear that? Or like, you know, why don't you wear this sort of thing? Uh, and being confused and perplexed by the dress, you know? So this is definitely a promise of the premise type of scene. Yeah, and it's funny with the uh, going shopping and, and walking through the city. Those are all things that I think are relatable to most people. Uh, for Diana, this is very new to her, but this is this is very mundane, just walking through the streets of the city, going to the store to, to maybe buy some clothes. Uh, so I think that that is interesting in terms of the culture shock for Diana that that is brand new to her, but that's something that would be normal for us. It would have been normal for them in this time period. Uh, so it's it's definitely new for Diana, just because, especially with the clothes buying, I don't suppose that they did, they did that maybe on Themyscira. I don't know. It seemed like they had a lot of uniforms and, and that sort of thing. So now she's getting to go and actually pick something out and, and choose what she wants to wear. Mm-hmm. So um, just a couple final things about the kind of scenes overall. Um, you mentioned the contrast between Man's World and Themyscira, so that's definitely a big part to take away from this um, visually and in terms of the interactions. Patty Jenkins, the director, she actually said, um, a quote, the shortcomings and injustices of a society are more readily observable to an outsider than to an insider. So that's from Patty Jenkins saying that basically Diana is a good character to help us see ourselves in a new way. And then... Ourselves on this podcast, we've talked about one of the themes of the movie being that the ugliness in the world comes from mankind following its baser urges. So right away with London, we see the dark, the smoke and the dirt and the grit. And it, it just seems like, wow, this is kind of a hideous society when you really look at it with fresh eyes. And why are we putting so much pollutant in the air? Um, why do we have such downtrodden people? And then inside, why do we have such immaculate like clothes and things for a certain echelon of society? So there are these kinds of problems you can see in the world, 
our theme that we talked about would be that these don't have to be that way. The, this kind of ugliness or negativity comes from people doing things sort of less than ideal or doing things less than their better selves. So uh, we'll get into that in some of the more of the details. The other big thing from this scene is we get to meet Etta Candy. So let's move towards that a little bit. Um, but starting with scene 18, we have the sailboat. It's being towed in now to the city of London, and we get the shot of all the smoke and smog and everything like this. And it's cool. I think they actually filmed this in London. I think I read that in the Art of the Making of the Film book. They said they filmed it in London, and they just had to use some CGI to remove anachronisms and make sure it looked how London would have looked at the time. But it's a pretty cool way to enter the scene. Like, we see London from kind of afar and a wide shot before we get into some of the details later. Yeah, I remember the the first image of Wonder Woman of the film when they were shooting the movie was actually uh, Diana in her her cloak, and they were in London. So uh, yeah, it's it's nice that they were able to go there and actually be part of the environment there. And, and sh- even though if maybe they had to do some CGI there, at least they made an effort to to try to make it look like. London so that it sort of, you know, it looks like it, it feels like it. And, and the actors probably enjoyed being over there and being uh, in that culture. Mm-hmm. To me, it, it also, we're dropping right in on this scene. And so we can talk about how it's kind of gray and black and dirty and stuff. But it's really effective in the context of the movie, because we've just been watching like a half hour on beautiful Themyscira with all the greens and the blues and the, you know, the women so in tune with nature and stuff. So that has really been setting us up for a long time for this like shock of seeing the smog and the dirtiness and stuff. So in the movie, it plays even better than I can like describe it right now. Oh, yeah. Even in terms of the water in on Themyscira, you have those beautiful waterfalls and even that uh, the pool that Steve uh, <laughs> uh, enjoys. Mm-hmm. He, he gets to sort of take a bath in um, beautiful blues and uh, just uh, fresh water, it almost seemed like. And here, even with the water that they're coming in on uh, in the, the river when they're in the tugboat, I mean, it's, you know, dark colors and everything mm-hmm. is very, very gray. So even even down to the water, I think it shows the contrast. Mm-hmm. Now they're being tugged in and Steve says we caught a ride and made some good time. And so for us, we always notice this word time. And Alessandro made the direct connection to Steve's watch and how earlier it set up this motif of time with Steve, which, of course, will pay off at the very end of the movie in a big way. But right here, it's a nice little reminder or a nice little touch on that motif for him to just refer to the good time that they made. Um, But Sydney was actually wondering, like, how long did it take them to get to London? (laughs) How long were we away from them, like, while we saw Ludendorff and stuff briefly? Was it one night or was it longer than that? That's a really good question because it, it... It, the scene makes it feel like it's the next day mm-hmm. uh, because you you have Steve and Diana on the boat at night and then they go to sleep and then Diana wakes up. So it seems like the next day, but I, I don't know if we know how far away Themyscira was. Is it a magical thing where it, it doesn't uh, take very long to get to London? Is that tugboat really just very mm-hmm. fast? <laughs> uh, so so it's, a, it's a great question. Yeah, and it's really one where, you know, you can't totally catch the filmmakers in a mistake because they don't explicitly say it's the next morning. True. So really, whatever time passed was just however much time needed to pass to get to London. We assume that Themyscira is kind of like in the Mediterranean because of how Steve's airplane, like, managed to get there. 
um, from him, you know, where he started out in his uh, finding the notebook and stuff. But uh, for me, I don't get too caught up on it. It's kind of interesting to think about for the characters, how long they were together. If they were together for multiple days and nights, then they might have bonded more um, than if it was just one night and they went to sleep. But the editing does kind of invite you to think it was just one night, so we don't really know. Um, But yeah, for them, if there was more character development amongst the two of them, they probably would have showed us. So yeah, I don't know. If there was multiple nights... Not nothing eventful must have happened on those other nights or else the filmmakers would have given us a little bit of an insight into it. Yeah, it also makes me think if it was multiple nights, did they have food rations? <laughs> were they mm. prepared to uh, have something to eat when they were on this journey? Uh, I would assume so. I would assume they would have packed something. But yeah, yeah those it, when you think about the, the time period and how much time has passed, then, then those c- kinds of questions uh, come up. <laughs> So they they disembark and they're in the streets of London now and there's a lot kind of going on. So it's kind of all hitting Diana like, wow, all this busyness around, you know, all these different people and stuff. Um, A few things kind of stood out. There's a guy who's doing like an escape routine from Chains. Um, That might be a little bit of a bondage nod to the history of Wonder Woman where there was a lot of bondage, especially in the original um, comics. So I don't know. Did you take it that way or did you take it to just be some street fair? I, I think you can take it that way. Um, I also got curious because when I see someone like that who's doing sort of an escape trick, I think of Harry Houdini. And so I looked up when he would have been popular. Mm-hmm. And actually during this time that the Wonder Woman film, uh, the story is set in, Harry Houdini would have been known at this time. He even, I when I did some research, he had, he had even done... Uh, a magic tour in England. So people in England would have known who he was and would have seen him Mm. perform. So I thought that that was a really interesting uh, uh, bit of trivia there that you could take it as a a bondage nod to early Wonder Woman comics, but uh, it could have also been a a way to acknowledge Harry Houdini and what he Mm. was doing at that time. Yeah. Uh, One of our listeners, Wayne Buck, um, he definitely noticed the bondage things and he took it as an homage to the Wonder Woman history um, he mentions Steve being tied up earlier on Themyscira, and then he mentions the chain person here, and then he also mentions Diana getting bound up in those tank treads like at the very end of the movie. So for Wayne, and I think others, they can definitely notice that because it is a fairly well-known part of the character's history. Um, some other stuff in the street, there's a bus that goes by, and there's an advertising slogan that says, um, Builds Bonnie Babies. Uh, so maybe this was a Glaxo product, it looks like. Um, Glaxo product that was considered super milk, and it was available in London at the time. So it looks like they might have actually found out some real products from the era and just put some advertising around in the streets. Yeah, I think that was a, a milk that was uh, ma- geared specifically towards, you know, babies and baby milk. Um, so they, I think they probably did some research about what would have been popular at that time. And so when I was doing some research, uh, I actually saw... Uh, these advertisements in London. So they they did a good job in doing their their homework for this movie mm. to know what, what would have been around during that time period and in London. Yeah, there was a truck that has like big lettering on it that's easy to read. It's called Robinson's, I think. Um, so we, as a team, we were kind of talking about what could this Robinson be a reference to? Thinking back to like Batman v Superman when there's like Nicholson, we're like, okay, we, we probably know who that Nicholson is referring to. But Robinson is a little bit more of a common last name. So we thought of a few ideas. Maybe it's James Robinson, who's a comic book writer, and he wrote some Wonder Woman comics in late 2017. But 
that's kind of a stretch because there are a lot bigger names of comic book writers who've been associated with Wonder Woman than James Robinson. And James Robinson's Wonder Woman comics were like after the movie actually came out. So it's probably not him. There's also Lillian Robinson, um, who Rebecca, you found, is an author who wrote a book called Wonder Women. And that's a book from 2004 about feminism and how that relates to superheroes. So maybe the filmmakers read that book as part of their research for the film. And if they liked it, they might have thrown in a Robinson reference. That's possible. Um, I think the most likely reference might be to Anna Lynch Robinson, who is the lead set decorator for the film. So I could see either her or one of her staff saying like, hey, Anna, I'm going to put Robinson right on this truck. Um, So to me, that seems like that could have been maybe the reference. I mean, if I was a set direct, a decorator, <laughs> I, I, would, I would try to put myself in there somewhere. Yeah, so that's pretty cool. And one thing, too, that I just give credit to the filmmakers for is that they allow the audience to actually really see all of this and take it all in. It's actually all in focus. And so the um, DP, Matt Jansen, he says that they did use a lot of wide lenses instead of long lenses. And the wide lenses gives you a lot more of the background in focus. Um, and so that allows us, the audience, to kind of feel like we're there and and we can track things with our eyes and we can decide where we want to focus. Um, so that was cool. And especially at a scene like this where we can look around and try to spot things if we want to, rather than like only having the subject in focus where you can't really see anything else anyway. I think that's such a good choice because it almost, for me, puts me in Diana's place where Diana is probably doing that. She's looking at all of these people. She's looking at the guy who's got the chain, you know, escaping from the chain. She's uh, eventually going to see a baby in this scene. She's looking at all these different things, the the man and the woman holding hands. So uh, I sort of feel like I'm in Diana's place, like looking around at everything that's happening in the street, trying to figure out who these people are. What is that truck? What is that advertisement? So I think that's a really nice choice. Mm-hmm. And then some of the people start looking back at her, too. So, like, they're maybe noticing, oh, it's a beautiful woman. Or maybe they can just tell she's from a different culture. She's dressed a little bit differently or she carries herself differently. Or maybe just these people can kind of just tell, like, you're not from around here. Like, they're getting that kind of vibe. So they're looking at her, too, which is kind of interesting. Uh, And then Diana starts to notice some of the some cultural things that happen. So she asks, why are they holding hands? Um, So we know Diana has read some things about sexual relationships between men and women, um, but that doesn't mean she would be familiar with like specific customs in England or gestures of affection that are specific to man's world. So she's kind of noticing, oh, they're holding hands, and Steve says, you know, it's they're together. So then Diana tries to grab his hand, and there's this little kind of moment between them. Yeah, it it is funny to think that she has done all of this study and this reading, but it's, uh, you know, holding hands is something that would have uh, required practicing it and actually putting it into putting it into a, a circumstance into a situational uh, type of uh, thing where she actually would you know need to know what that was like instead of just reading it in a book somewhere mm-hmm. and it gives a nice little moment between the two of them uh, and Alessandro pointed out too that once they're holding hands like Steve is leading Diana and Alessandro connected that to the tugboat um, which was leading the boat um, and the ironic thing that Alessandra pointed out, this is kind of a nice insight, is that overall here, where are they going? Well, Diana thinks that Steve is taking her to the fighting because she wants to go right directly to see Ares, who she assumes is at the fighting. But actually, Steve is leading her to Steve's superiors. But the ironic thing is that Ares is actually with Steve's superiors. So, like, Steve thinks he's taking her 
not to Ares. Diana thinks he's taking her not to Ares, but really he is taking her to Ares, it turns out, <laughs> once we find out like who he actually is. So that's kind of a fun moment or you know, to realize in retrospect that, oh, they actually were going to Ares, even though they thought at the moment that they were not going to Ares. Right, yeah, they're not going directly to the war, but that doesn't mean that Ares isn't there. Yeah, and so Diana's kind of upset when, you know, when they're not going directly to the war, and Steve says, well, you know, we have to go make this report to my higher-ups, and then he says, um, I'll take you to Ares next, or whatever. And there's uh, there's this little uh, interaction between them where Diana says, you made a promise, a promise is unbreakable. Uh, and the way that they filmed and acted that line i will admit like i thought that was a big setup for something later because they kind of like all the momentum stops and diana says like i promise is unbreakable so i thought for somehow later there was going to be like a big coming to terms moment of like oh a broken promise or something like that between the two characters and i don't think there ever really was like to me a promise never became like a big thing later but it does show from diana that she expects people to just do the right thing like of course, you would keep a promise. Like, that's the only thing anybody would ever do, right? So that goes back to her innocence. And Alessandra pointed out that in the DC movie universe, promises are a big issue. Batman in BVS said that promises aren't really worth, worth anything. But by the end of BVS, Batman, Bruce, does realize the value of promises. And he makes new promises to people at the end of BVS. So that shows, like, a big ch- turn for him. And so maybe this is showing us that, like, Diana is on the side of good and purity, um, that she, of course, would put faith in promises because that's what an optimistic kind of positive-looking person does. Oh, yeah. I, I think that is, you could say something about how promises indicate a hero and a hero having standards. Hmm. Yeah. So there's also the baby moment, uh, which is one that stands out to a lot of the audience and stuff. So what was your reaction when you saw, the, oh, the baby uh, well, I, I think it's it's a it, I think it's first played for comedic relief um, because it is a, a humorous moment that that Diana would boi- break away from what they're doing to to, to go and <laughs> and get sidetracked. It's almost like she saw something shining shining and she ran towards it. Um, but I think that Diana, of course, probably wouldn't have seen a baby on Themyscira. She was the youngest one there. um, And they they wouldn't have had a baby. That was very rare for Themyscira. But I also think that the baby is a a connection to her as a woman. There's a lot of contrasting uh, between women and men and Diana coming from uh, an island full of women to man's world. And so I think that Diana uh, embracing this this baby, seeing this new thing that she's never seen before, and seeing it as something that you know women are the only ones who can actually birth babies, mm-hmm. and I think that that is an important part of showing the difference between men and women because that's a big part of this movie. And I think what one of the things that the movie does really well is it shows the the differences between men and women, and I think mm-hmm. this is one of those instances. Yeah, some people said, oh, that's so stereotypical to have a woman, like, fawning over a baby. But for me, I'm like, don't take that away from Diana. Like, she has never seen a baby before, but it is such a strong, womanly, a maternal kind of thing. So for me, I'm like, to me, it's not the time to call out sexism or call out stereotypes. I'm like, no, in this situation for this character, to me, it makes a lot of sense that she would be fascinated and just immediately drawn and respond to a baby. So... For me, I didn't. I did not have a problem with it at all. I thought it was, if anything, I thought it was a really nice moment. 
Yeah, and Diana is em- embracing all of it. She's she's trying to figure out all of it, mm-hmm. including seeing a baby for the first time. Yeah. Uh, so I, I I don't see I don't have any problem with it. Right, and it doesn't make her weaker that she has a soft spot for babies. Like it's like Patty Jenkins said, like to really fully embrace a woman character, you have to realize that it doesn't weaken her to also have femininity or something like that. And so for me, I'm like, yeah, Wonder Woman can still kick butt in the same way and she can still cuddle a little baby. Like it doesn't take anything away from her strength and power. I would think it would be weirder if Diana, who came from an island full of women who had never seen a baby before, didn't fawn over the baby. Like, I think I think yeah. that would be the weirder situation. So mm-hmm. I think it's a nice moment. I think it's a nice moment that plays into her character and the, the broader themes of the movie and uh, gives a little comedic relief because uh, Steve says something to the effect of that one's not ma- made, made out of clay. clay. Yeah. <laughs> so so I think I think it's a nice little moment that does take us into the next scene. It's sort of it's an it's a nice button to the end of the scene. Yeah. And now some people could say, oh, Steve is kind of a jerk. Like he doesn't let her have a longer moment with the baby and he kind of like pulls her along to go where they need to go. But to me, that's kind of the point. Steve does kind of jerk her around for this first part of the movie, but it's so that you can have a shift happen later where later Steve realizes like, Oh, I should actually be following Diana. I should not be like (laughs) pulling her around on my thing. So for me, it's like, you have to have these moments where Steve does kind of pull her along kind of in a, you know, male dominated way so that you can have the contrast later. Yeah, and this is this is his terrain. This is his world. So he he's got to steer her in the way that uh, they need to go to to get what they need done. Yeah, and then uh, you mentioned how this kind of has some momentum going to the next scene, and they really have a very clear connection because they say, you know, we need some clothes. Like Diana's noticing the women, and he's kind of wondering what do the women wear in battle. Um, and they say, oh, they're not really in. You know, they don't go into the fighting at this time, which to Diana would seem kind of silly, right? Like you don't let the women fight. It doesn't make any sense. But the fact that they're talking about the clothing gives us a very clear motivation for the next scene. Um, so, yeah, they they need these clothes, and that gives us the direct transition, which is really the way that Wonder Woman does its transitions. Almost every time, they directly kind of tell you, like, hey, this is what the next scene is going to be. Okay, here's the next scene. Um, so that brings us to scene 19, where they come right in you know, the door and walk into this department store with the clothes all around. So scene 19, um, first of all, we get the the entrance of Etta Candy. That's probably like the most important thing that happens in this scene is we get a new, you know, not major, but, um, you know, moderately important character. Uh, I actually thought Etta Candy was going to be more important or more central to the plot than she was, but I might say more about that later. Um, but first, let's get into Etta Candy. So do you want to tell us anything about kind of the history of Etta Candy or what are your thoughts on this character who is now entering the movie? Well, uh, I would agree with you that I thought Etta Candy would have played a bigger part mm-hmm. in this movie, but I I, th- I think they utilized her uh, well enough for the story that they were telling. So I, I was bummed on a personal level that we didn't get to see more of her, but mm-hmm. I think uh, the the way she she was used in the film I, th- I thought was good. Um, but yeah, Etta Candy first appeared in Sensation Comics number two from 1942. Um, and created by uh, Wonder Woman's creator, William Moulton Marston. Uh, She was originally a plus-size character in terms of body type, which was unconventional at the time. And even now, it's rare for comic books to embrace full-figured characters through uh, Faith Herbert and Valiant Comics, uh, though Faith Herbert and Valiant Comics is a notable exception. 
Yeah, and I think that it goes to show like William Moulton Marston, you know, being ahead of his time in a lot of ways, but one way was he explicitly wanted to have a, you know, different kind of body type than is normal in comics. And so I think that's good to embrace that. We're kind of realizing that more in modern times, but he was already thinking about that in the 40s, which I think, you know, says a lot for him. Um, and Lucy Davis is not, you know, not really a huge person, but they, the clothes and the wardrobe that they put her in, they almost kind of emphasized more of a full body kind of uh, build. Yeah. And I think that the character of Etta Candy and the way she looks is a, a nice, um, I know I feel like I'm using the word contrast a lot, but the movie does do a lot of contrast. And Etta mm-hmm. Candy is a great contrast to Diana. Yeah. You you have these two women who look completely different, and they even mention those differences when they're shopping and trying all these clothes on when, when Etta says, you know, you need to keep it in. And, and Diana says, why would you need to keep it in? And uh, there's that little interplay between the two of them because their their bodies are different because they are shaped differently. Um, so I think that the the way they are visually is a nice contrast just to show that there are, are different kinds of women. Um, in terms of the comics, uh, I haven't read a lot of these, but I did read some sampling of Golden Age comics, and Etta Candy was there a lot in the Golden Age, um, uh, not as much in the Silver and Bronze Age, I've, I hear. But I do know that recently she is in the comic books with Wonder Woman and Steve Trevor, but she has been redesigned. So they've kind of gone away from that plus size, you know, body type a bit. And they've also made her African-American now, so different race. Um, And they've given her a kind of a different role to play. So she actually has the rank of commander and she works a lot with Steve Trevor, but more in like an equal way rather than like as a you know secretary or servant kind of way. And there is still the friendship between Etta and Diana. So that seems to be like a constant um theme between the two characters Um, but the nature of the relationship is different now in the comics um, because in the history she was like the sorority girl from holiday college and had a lot of college hijinks and stuff Uh, and now it's much more like military she's in the battles she's doing the intrigue and danger and all that stuff so if you if you're an etta candy fan there's a lot of different iterations a lot of different things you can see her doing Um, i think lucy davis did a nice job bringing the character to life i thought especially lucy davis was good at reactions like, she, she does her lines well, but also just reacting to what's going on around her. Um, in this scene, and then later with uh, Sir Patrick and stuff, Lucy Davis just has some great reactions that are just f- full of personality. I think that part was pretty cool. I'm no actress, <laughs> but from what I've heard, that a big part of acting is reacting. So uh, the fact that she is a good reactor uh, tells me that she is a great actor, first and foremost. So I I would agree. She has a great way of playing off of other people's lines or the way that they look at something. She has a a, she bounces back from whatever they're doing and how she's feeding off the other actors. Uh, She does a really good job. Yeah. You mentioned how she, you know, brings some of the comedy to the to the movie, what, what I really liked um, was that Etta brought some comic relief, but that she was not like the only source of comedy. And so it wasn't like she had to take a dry scene or a serious scene and just straight up inject it with a bunch of comedy and one-liners. I liked it more that her comedy was from the actual situations that were happening. And I also liked it that there was other comedy, other humor also happening, like Steve and Diana's interactions or Diana reacting to society. Or once we get to the Odd Fellows, like I liked it that the humor came from situations and characters rather than one-liners. 
Um, but I also like that it was spread around. So when we have a comedic character like Etta Candy, she can fit in rather than just like being really obvious as, oh, they're putting in her, you know, they're putting her in for the jokes. It's like, well, she is funny, but she's not the only one carrying that load. So I appreciated that for kind of the film overall. And I think it, it made Etta Candy's character thrive in this movie that she didn't have to be like the only funny part of an otherwise straight up action serious movie. Yeah, I think that's a great point. She not only delivers some funny moments in this scene specifically, but she also gives context to the time period and the history of what women are going through in England at this time. And I think that that's, you know, that's not necessarily a comedic thing, but they're they're using some of these situations to bring out some comedy, but also give some serious moments to it. So I think there's a really good balance in this scene. Yeah. Now, we both kind of mentioned that we thought she would have maybe had a bigger part to play. I thought they were going to maybe like use her character to explore more of the sexism of the era um, or get into the suffrage movement, which gets a quick mention, but did not get like developed as much as I was expecting. Or I thought that she might have like a big empowering moment at the end of the movie where she has to like contribute in some way. So it's kind of like Diana inspired Etta to step out from behind the desk and like take a more active role in the events. Um, But that didn't really happen in the way that I expected, but still the character served what she needed to do in the movie. And we do have a quote from Patty Jenkins um, from the art and making of the film book where she talks about Etta Candy and Patty Jenkins says, quote, there were many women like her who in 1918 were getting into the workforce and finding a way to work the system to be an integral part of the war and everything that was happening behind the scenes. I always think of Etta as somebody who would end up being a very high-powered person in the world in the modern day, end quote. So that's kind of a nice insight, too, though, saying that, like, at that time, for women to find any sort of a role to play was sort of like an act of forward movement or a a progressive act, um, because it would be easy for women of that time to just stay back and stay down, because that's where basically the powerful men were trying to put them So for Etta to be doing even the little bit that she does, you know, she helps out with the sword, she makes a move to, you know, run the mission, that kind of stuff are actually pretty big steps at the time. Yeah, those are big responsibilities. Uh, The stuff that she does later on in the film where she is helping to coordinate the mission that uh, everyone is going on, even though she's not out in the field, that's still a really important part of that uh, that plan that they were able to navigate everywhere. So, um, yeah, I, I like what Patty Jenkins, uh, had to say there. Cause I think that someone like Etta is a go-getter. I think she's someone who earns the trust of the people she's working for. So yeah, I could totally buy that. She would be <laughs> a high powered person in, in today's world. Mm-hmm. All right. So let's go through some of these, uh, these events of the scene here. So Diana comes in and it's pretty cool that Etta, just immediately accepts Diana. Like she just extends her hand, shakes it. She doesn't give her any dirty looks or wonder like, who is this woman? She just is very kind of open arms. Uh, and then pretty quickly we'll say, I really like her. But I also like at the beginning here that Etta says to Steve, like, oh, I thought you were dead or something like that, which in retrospect we know is actually a foreshadowing of Steve's death, that by the end of the movie he actually will be dead. So that's kind of sad, but um, it's a subtle way that the filmmakers put in that foreshadowing. Yeah, and it shows that even before Wonder Woman or Diana shows up in Steve's life, he was out there doing dangerous things that would put his life Mm -hmm. at risk. Mm -hmm. And then here at the beginning, too, there's the famous interaction where um, 
Steve introduces Etta as a secretary, and Diana says, what is a secretary? Uh, so this is the nice, you know, kind of culture shock uh, premise paying off. And then there's the, oh, where I'm from, that's called slavery. And then that's where Etta says, oh, I really like her. Um, so that's uh, that's a famous interaction. They used it in the trailers, I think. Um, and that's just a memorable moment of like, oh, Diana coming into the world and getting this little zinger in about, you know, you know, holding women down as secretaries when they could be doing more. Uh, nothing against secretaries, but Diana's kind of like, boy, it sounds like Steve, you like you kind of are, are using her and sort of being the overlord above her. So um, what did you make of that moment? What was re- your reaction to it? Yeah, I really like this moment in the scene because I think it's used to bond Diana and Etta as women. And I, even though it's a small moment, uh, you know, given their comic book history that they are friends, uh, I like that Diana inspires Etta to be more than just a secretary. You know, she, you know, this is what Etta's doing right now, but Diana thinks that she could be more than that. And we see all throughout the film that Diana lifts people up. And I, I think she does that with Etta in the scene. Mm-hmm. And then they get to do some more bonding by going clothes shopping. Uh, so something that Etta can help with that maybe Steve wouldn't be as well suited for. <laughs> so uh, and it's kind of ironic, though, that Etta is the one to help with the you know fashion sense, because Linda Hemming, the costume designer of the movie, she said this about Etta Candy. Every rule to make someone look really good is broken in Etta Candy. Because you try to make her look a bit like a stuffed sofa. <laughs> with with Lucy Davis's agreement, because she's a comedy actress and she knows what to do to make things better. So, end quote. So, you know, Lucy Davis is in on the joke. But, yeah, this kind of goes to the, they didn't put Etta Candy in the most flattering kind of uh, outfits that they could have. But she's still the person who's there is going to help Diana try to pick something out. <laughs> That's really funny to say uh to describe someone as a stuffed sofa (laughs) but yeah that's 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 funny that they would have even thought on a character level that um that etta would maybe think that she knows what she's talking about (laughs) but maybe she doesn't really Uh, so i like that they they paid attention to those character um traits in the scene Mm -hmm. the shot there's the shot from above where they walk in so you can really get a sense of this place um and they filmed this on location i think yeah it was a real set for the department store and they brought in a lot of props from the era. Um, Anna Lynch Robinson, who we mentioned earlier, she was the director of props and set decorating. Um, who, by the way, they tried to have a lot of women in key roles on the film crew and stuff. Um, so that was cool. Not just the director, but set decorator and other things. Costumes as well by women. Um, but this was filmed at Exhibition Hall at the Australia House in London. So this, you could go there in London and see where they filmed this part, especially the opening when they walk in. Now, I will say the one thing that distracted me a little bit was the music, because the music here really goes into a kind of a almost over-the-top, like, humorous, like, uh, I don't know if it would be like, you know, the music you might hear in a dance hall of the era or something, but to me it's like, oh, it doesn't sound like film music from the 21st century. It sounds like they're really going for a humorous vibe in, you know, this older London setting. So I guess it's like an effective bit of music, but to me... I notice it, it kind of sticks out to me a little bit too much. So I wish that the music maybe would have blended in a little bit more. It definitely plays it safe to to make you think, oh, this is a comedic scene. This yeah. is going to be funny. Uh, so it, like like you said, I, th- I think it's uh, it's effective. It does the job, but it, it plays into what you think a comedic scene would sound like. So <laughs> yeah. in, in that regard, uh, it is a little disappointing. 
this is a funny scene as it gets going. So Diana starts to look at the clothes and like, is this what passes for armor? Like she, she, she doesn't have any frame of reference for what these, these kind of undergarments would be and stuff. And so Diana's like, I guess this is like a body armor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, th- I think it takes her a little bit to understand what, what's going on here and how the women uh, are part of the society and they're not necessarily the ones who are going into war. So I think this is another one of those instances where Diana is having to figure out what's happening with the culture and the people who are around her. Um, and I, I can't even imagine what that would be like if you st- com- stepped into a completely new world and had to totally figure out how women were uh, seen in society and how you were supposed to behave uh, so I can't I can't even imagine um, having to ad- ad- adapt yeah. all of that. Yeah, you just look at a single object, and if you're from that culture, that object makes a lot of sense. You know how to you know interpret it and think of it. But if you're brand new to the entire world, you look at this object and like I have no frame of reference to like interpret right. what that object is. So I'll put it in my frame of reference, which is like armor, and you know I'm I've trained a lot and I've you know when I'm putting on something I'm thinking about how I'm going to move in it and how if it's going to be able to protect me while I'm fighting so she brings that frame of reference and I think that's why it works for Diana not to seem stupid it's just that Diana is coming from a whole different set of experiences and we've talked about this before in our analysis how Patty Jenkins and Gal Gadot they they didn't want to cross over into her seeming stupid they wanted to keep her on this innocent and naive but she is very smart. Like if she had the background, she would not have any trouble interpreting what's going on. So I think things like this, they they walked that line well. It it's funny. It does bring up that she's from this different world. But at least for me, I never think of Diana as stupid. I just think like, of course, you would not know. This would not make any sense to you because it's totally a cultural construction. And I like the way that they start Diana out in her character journey because when you Flash forward a hundred years from now, when you see her in Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice, she is regal. She has these beautiful dresses on mm-hmm. and she she's totally acclimated to mm-hmm. man's world. And she understands how the clothing works and how jewelry works and all of that. And she she goes to these fancy parties. So mm-hmm. you see that her her character starts having to learn these things back in 1918. Yeah, that's a great point. It'd be funny to watch just this clothes shopping scene and then turn on like Lexus Gala and BVS and be like, whoa, right. she's, she's come a long way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> There's this first purple dress with like a hat on. And I remember I saw this movie in theater several times and this like got a huge laugh of her just walking out in the purple dress. Now, I'm not I'm not like a fashion person. I'm kind of ignorant with respect to fashion stuff. But do you know why it's like so funny? Is it is the dress just so old fashioned or like nobody would do this design or is it the color or the hat or what? I think it's a mix of the color and the poofiness of it, maybe. <laughs> that dress that she puts on, the purple one with the hat, is a little poofier than the other ones. Some of some of the other outfits she has on look a little sleeker, a little slimmer, but the poofiness of it does make it a little more ridiculous. And the hat, even though in that time period hats would have been uh, very stylish and and in for that time period, especially when when you go into some of my favorite decades like the 30s and 40s. Everybody wore hats; it was very popular and, and um, something that women wore a lot of. Hmm. Uh, but now, when we think of that, we don't we don't think of that as stylish in our our 
today way of thinking. Mm-hmm. So I think it is a combination of the of the hat and the poofiness of the dress. Mm-hmm. It's kind of interesting, too, to see this scene where she tries out several outfits, you know, and there's a little gag with, you know, some of them. But we know that it's leading up to this, you know, one that she's going to wear for several more scenes in the future. And this trying on outfits has happened with other characters, with other um, female superheroes as well. You might know something about this show called Supergirl. (laughs) I mean, I know a little bit about it. Um, But there's in like the pilot episode, I think it was, there's a scene where uh, Wynn and Kara are going to try out some different outfits, right? And it's a similar thing where it's like, try that out. Nope, nope, not that one. Oh, that's funny. And then like another one. And then you arrive at like the the real one that's going to continue on into future scenes. Yeah, there's there's definitely a montage that happens, and some of them have some possibilities that could work, and some of them are completely ridiculous. So I think that they play up uh, that kind of comedy in this scene in Wonder, Wo- Wonder Woman as well. And you said you remembered that in another um, TV drama that featured some superhero characters? <laughs> yeah, there's a very famous uh, montage that they do on Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman, when uh, Dean Cain's Clark is trying on different variations of the Superman suit. He and his mother, Martha Kent, are trying out different takes that sort of lead up into the final Superman suit. So I, I think that's a, a, a pretty typical uh, superhero uh, trope that happens in in TV and film, just to see the progression of how you get to that point. Um, and even though this is not Diana figuring out her Wonder Woman costume mm-hmm. so much, this is uh, her figuring out her her costume, if you if you will, mm-hmm. for Man's World and having to figure out what she's going to wear in the meantime before she even gets to uh, reveal the Wonder Woman suit. I will point out too that Sydney mentioned that it is pretty funny especially because uh, for women if they've just done this clothes shopping routine and they've tried things on and it when you try it on it does not look as good as you were kind of hoping or expecting it to look and that can be funny or to realize that something that's maybe fashionable is not practical or comfortable and so being inside of it can kind of be funny as well and when you kind of step outside of it, you can realize like, oh, this is all kind of societal norms uh, that we're supposed to wear this sort of stuff, which is maybe not very practical or comfortable when you really get down to it. So there is a lot of like cultural history or uh, understandings that people share that this movie taps into very quickly and effectively. And it got, like I said, it got huge laughs. Um, Just her appearance in that dress would get people laughing out loud. So definitely tapping into something effective there. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because Steve even says, well, you should just go try it on. And I, I think everyone has that that thinking that, oh, well, you know, I like that thing on the rack. And then when you take it on and you try it on, uh, maybe it doesn't work out so much. <laughs> uh, so I think there is something to that. Yeah. And then um, there's some other little moments, too, like where she's trying on another outfit that's kind of a tighter skirt. And she's like, how could a woman fight in this? And she tries to, like, move her legs. Um So that's a funny rip and stuff like that one. I get why that one's funny. (laughs) But there's also the moment where they talk about a woman fighting and Etta says, well, we use our principles. That's how we're going to get the vote. And that reference to the vote is is like about all there is for the suffrage movement, which I thought there was going to be more of it just because of the time period being in England and being, you know, in the 19 teens. I thought the suffrage movement would be bigger, but at least we got a little reference to it. Yeah, and I really like that line that Edit says about, you know, we use our principles. Mm -hmm. um, And, you know, we don't fight, we use our principles. And even though for Edda, 
she's not going to physically fight like Diana probably would. I, I think it's interesting by the end of the film, we see Diana fighting with her principles. Mm. She uses her principles and her belief in love to battle Ares and defeat Ares. So uh, mm. even though love might not have physically killed Ares, she still, uh, Diana still uses that belief to gather the strength inside of her to do what she has to do. Mm. And so I think even though uh, Diana and Etta are so different in terms of their physical and the way that they would choose to fight, they both use their principles in order to uh, get the job done. Mm -hmm. That's a nice point. Um, there's a moment later where Steve comes in to check on them, and they've been going at this for a while, and Etta makes a comment about its outfit number 226. Some people think this might be a reference to Greg Rucka, um, who was writing Wonder Woman, and Wonder Woman killed Maxwell Lord in maybe issue 226. Is that what the, the theory is, at least? I believe that is correct. Yeah. And then, before too long, then we get the real outfit, um, which it's kind of, they chose this one purposefully because this was an actually a, a new outfit at the time. It was kind of cutting edge. And what it actually is, is it's based on a prototype of a female army member suit. Um, and this is because women weren't really in the military or the armed forces, so there weren't really uniforms for women. But there were women who were coming onto at least the, you know, the near the front lines and were helping out in certain ways. So they had this prototype suit for a female army member. And that's actually the basis for what they ended up putting Diana in here. And that's what she wears into the future scenes. So I thought that was kind of cool how they tied this. It, it doesn't just look good, you know, on Gal Gadot for the character. And it's more modest and it's kind of very functional. So that matches the character well. But the filmmakers actually found some real history in, um, as inspiration for the costume. So that's kind of a cool little background on it. Yeah. And she blends in well, it's not flashy. It's not, you know, it's not going to get a laugh like the, the big purple dress. Um, and I do like that maybe if it's related to the army, that that plays into the fact that she's going to fight with these guys and she's going to um, be a part of their mission. So I think that plays into her character and the, the journey that she's going to go on. Mm hmm. Now, Steve apparently thinks that she still looks a little bit too good. And so <laughs> he comes up and he puts some glasses on and there's the nice moment of her kind of pushing the, the glasses on. And we have that, you know, kind of part of the disguise, so to speak. Um, but a nice line here from Etta Candy too, like continuing the, the comedic role that she's been setting up. Yeah, she says, really, Specs? Suddenly she's not the most beautiful woman you've ever seen? And that makes me laugh because it's so true. Even even though Diana puts on the glasses on, uh, even though she puts glasses on, she's still really beautiful. So I agree with Etta. It's uh it's not it's it's very difficult to hide her beauty even even if you try to use glasses. I don't think mm -hmm. that's going to be very effective. But it's definitely a play on secret identities and glasses mm -hmm. being used to try to cover up and and make someone look different. Uh, or look differently than what they normally do. Characters like Superman, obviously, mm -hmm. uh, in the the Clark Kent persona. So uh, glasses, I guess, <laughs> maybe work sometimes. But in this instance, uh, they go with it for a little while. Yeah. Now that she has her outfit, uh, they there's a cut. It's kind of a comedic cut because they cut to her walking down the stairs. But now she has the outfit, but she's carrying a sword and shield like right out front. So obviously she's not going as incognito as they probably hoped that she would do. <laughs> um, and her strut that she's kind of doing is pretty funny. 
And, you know, this is where maybe the, the music was letting us know, like, hey, this is pretty much going to be a straight comedy scene. You know, not just one gag, not just one funny line, but the whole scene um, is really going for the humorous notes. Um, and they get to the revolving door, so we get one more little kind of sight gag that they can do with her trying to, to get through the revolving door. And you notice that the uh, the German spy is actually right there kind of trying to go through the revolving door, so he's keeping, like, close tabs on him. Yeah, and that was something that I didn't notice until multiple viewings. So you you really have to pay attention with all the background people that are moving around in these scenes. That ends up kind of being important later out on the sidewalk because Steve and Diana leave, but the camera stays on Etta, and Etta kind of like furrows her brow and like looks forward. And she actually, we realize later that she sees the German spy kind of go and tail um, Steve and Diana, and Etta notices that. Now, at this moment, we don't know why it matters, uh, and we don't know what Etta's going to do about it. But later we find out it actually becomes important that Etta noticed that the German spy was following them. And that's, I think, also credit to Etta, right? She's she's not just funny. She's not just caring and, you know, like friendly person. But she's also pretty observant. So that's kind of a nice little thing for her character. And it makes me think that maybe she's been in the field a little bit. Maybe she's had some training. Maybe she has been on uh, missions with Steve Trevor before where she's had to... Uh, figure out if someone is trailing them. It just makes me think that she's been in this position before. Mm. Yeah, so that's interesting. We'll we'll see that um, pay off later. So that is a nice little setup. And it's kind of a nice way to end the scene. We had a lot of comedy, but now there's a little bit of like, oh, the danger is back. You know, like we're keeping the threat alive. It didn't totally disappear in this scene. So I think that was nice. Yeah, I, I think it, it gives some, it makes it right. It uh, raises the stakes. Uh, to what we're going to next. All right, so those are our thoughts on scenes 18 and 19 of Wonder Woman. We covered a lot of ground there, I think, Rebecca. Oh, yes, lots of shopping, lots (laughs) of uh, uh, new environments, and uh, getting to meet a new character. So lots of good stuff there. Yeah, and the next episode we'll have here, Sydney and I will be discussing um, the very next scene. We'll stay in Wonder Woman here, and we'll see what happens with that German spy, and we get to see the alleyway fight scene. So as usual, thanks everybody for listening. Thanks for um, trying out this new format with us. Let us know what you think about it at JLU Podcast on Twitter. And also, we always thank the Suicide Squadcast for keeping us up to date on DCEU news. And thanks to Man of Steel Answers for being basically the original inspiration for this podcast.